Thanks, Stace. What an awesome opportunity we have, you guys, to partner with Sterling House. I'm excited about, um, about this project, but I'm also excited about what it means as, as we try to make a greater impact in the Fairfield County area. You guys are awesome, and you stepped up, and you rake leaves in Trumbull. You were helping out at the Great Thanksgiving Project in Bridgeport, and now we're partnering with Sterling House in Stratford. So very, very cool. Hey, so today um, we are in Acts chapter 15, which is almost the, you know, the middle of the book uh, beginning to end. And scholars consider it the, the, the center of the book theologically. And I would go so far as to say that it might be just considered the center of our faith because it focuses on this idea of this thing called grace. And I, from, from my heart, you guys, I want... Um, I want you to, to get your head around this idea as much as you can. Um, I want it to sink in to your heart and to your very being because this idea of grace is who God is. It's, who he, as, um, it's how he identifies himself. And if you can begin, if we can begin to comprehend what grace is and all that it does and the impact that it can have, man, we really can we really will disrupt Fairfield County. So um, with that being said, we're going we're gonna to jump in and I'm going to throw a timeline up here. So this is a timeline of the second half of the book of Acts. And where we are at in chapter 15, Paul just finished his first missionary journey. That's on um, that first box mark number one. That's the, his first missionary journey. And what we're going to read today is that time in between there around the time between 49 and 50 AD, and it's this thing called the Jerusalem Council. Really important that we um, get the historical and kind of theological context of, of what is going on at this time. The Jews, as we've talked about, were God's chosen people. And as a result, they felt that the God, the one God, was theirs exclusively. And it led them to this position, um, and not the way God had intended, but they viewed Gentiles as not worthy of God, that God um, couldn't, couldn't love them. And then the Holy Spirit comes on the scene and starts doing crazy things, um, crazy, crazy things in one sense, but totally um, in line with the rest of Scripture and prophecy and fulfillment of the blessing of Abraham that was promised in the Old Testament coming through Jesus to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. So that's what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They were out sharing the good news of Jesus with um, the, the world outside of Jerusalem, with those outside of Judaism. And it started to create this tension. The church was growing and it had these growing pains. So um, there was a, uh, as the Gentiles were being brought into the family, there were a group of, um, I guess the best way to describe them would be really conservative Jewish people who felt like the Gentiles needed to first become Jews. Um, and the question that they were wrestling with was this, did these Gentile believers in Jesus first have to become a Jew as signified in keeping the Jewish law, including circumcision, before they could become a Christian? All right, so that's, that's the question that kind of frames this whole passage that we're about to look at. This is Acts chapter 15, verses 5 through 20. Here we go. Then 
Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors had been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. Then the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, these things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. All right, so the question, right? Remember the question, do the Gentile believers have to first become Jewish before they can become followers of Jesus? And I don't know if you caught it, but as I was reading through that, um, all of like the, the big hitters of the early church were there. Peter was there, Paul was there, James was there. And I want to I wanna point out to you each of the things that they said. Right, first Peter shows up and he reminds them of how um, how God worked through him in at Cornelius's house and how the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius's family. But he also takes a little shot at the at the leadership of um, the conservative sect. He says, "Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear?" He's like. You guys are nuts. We couldn't do this. Why are the Why are we going to expect anybody else to do this? And so um, that was Peter's kind of initial initial remark. And then um, we have Paul and Barnabas who step up, and they are relaying the stories of the amazing things that the Holy Spirit did as they shared the gospel with the Gentiles. Right. So Peter kind of sets the stage. God used him to open the door to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas go out. And they start spreading the word of God, and it starts to take off and explode amongst the Gentiles. And then James steps up. And so what's really important about James, right? This is James, the brother of Jesus, who um, he was known to be a, the law was very, very important to him. He was known to be a law-abiding member of, of Judaism. Um, and it was, he took it very, very seriously. And this whole question was an idea around God's law and specific circumcision. And then he gives, he had become the leader of the church, he gives this summary statement. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, 
We should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, from the blood. All right, so that's the decision, right? James renders the decision. The rationale for the decision is back in verse 11, which we hear from Peter. No, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. You guys, this idea of grace is everything. And here's like kind of in a nutshell what we want to look at. The grace of Jesus is available for everyone, for everyone. And there's nothing that we can add to grace. There's nothing um, that it's not, yeah, you have the grace of Jesus. That's what saves you, but also circumcision or in today's kind of context, yeah, it's, it's the grace of Jesus, right? That's what it is. But you also have to, um, you know, not drink alcohol. You have to uh, be a Republican. You have to do X, Y, and Z. It is grace plus nothing, and it is available for everyone. We don't have to check all the right boxes. We don't have to hang out with the right people, right? It's about the grace of, of Jesus. And so we, we talk about grace a lot, um, but I wanted to take this opportunity to, to really take kind of a deeper dive into what grace is so we can get our brains around it. And like I said at the beginning, if we do, I think this can have a huge impact on our lives and on the lives of the people around us. So the first question is then, what is grace? And the biblical language is rich around this idea of grace, Old Testament and New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we get this idea of a stronger person entity acting on behalf for a weaker entity, but that action is predicated upon the weaker asking for, requesting the help of the stronger, right? Jesus being the stronger, we're coming to him saying, Jesus, I need you. I can't do it without you. This idea of grace is also how God defines himself. Exodus 34, 6, which we've talked about a lot. The Lord, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. That's the Lord identifying himself when the Moses asked him, who, what is your name? That's how he identifies himself, as gracious. And then it also, um, there's a great website called Bible Project, uh, BibleProject.com. And it uh, takes really complex ideas and turns them into super understandable, digestible chunks. And one of the, one of the phrases that they have is, um, the, it's God's, action it's his delight in taking action on our behalf really really cool stuff and then we look at the new testament superlatives around grace this is an amazing list you guys listen to this these are um the references are in my notes all abundant all sufficient glorious great manifold rich undeserved gift of god in christ that's um that's quite a list so if we try to take all of that and sum it up it might look something like this. What is grace? Grace is God's joyful kindness towards the unworthy and the undeserving. So if that's what grace is, the next thing we want to figure out is what does grace do? And I think there's really there's a big one big mistake that very many of us uh, make about grace, and that's this, is that it is the equivalent of a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It's we, um, it's what allows us kind of, it's what opens the door for us and that's it. Like it's just a, it's a one and done kind of thing. 
Yes, grace is what freed us, frees us from the power of sin and death, but grace is also what frees us to live the life that God created us to live. Long before any of this, God, it's through faith in Jesus, right, that we come to him. And then once we come to him, it's grace that empowers us to live the life, to do the good works that he created for us to do in advance. So if we look at the apostles that we talked about that are listed, that spoke up at the meeting, yet they were saved from, the the grace of Jesus stepped in and saved them from, opened the doors of heaven to them and saved them from. Like, look at the things that that these guys did. James, the brother of Jesus, James did not believe Jesus was Jesus when he was alive, before Jesus was crucified and and rose again. As a matter of fact, James and his other brothers kind of thought their elder brother Jesus was nuts and they should be trying to take care of him and protect him from people and people from from him. Um, Peter is kind of infamous for his threefold denial of Jesus when Jesus needed him most. Peter turned his back on him. And then then there was Paul who... um, made a career out of trying to destroy the church, including the imprisonment, torture, and murder of innocent men and women. And the grace of Jesus is what saves them. But it doesn't stop there. They're saved to these amazing, amazing things, right? James um, James comes forward to, to lead the church. Peter steps up, and he's the rock upon which... Jesus, that's what Jesus tells him. I'm going to build my church on you. So James is the leader of the local church in Jerusalem. The whole church is going to, is under Peter's leadership. And Paul goes on to um, the, his, his missionary journeys. He's the one that takes the gospel to Europe. He takes it to Asia. These guys, they, um, they lead a movement that is 2,000 years old and still going strong. They are co-authors of the best-selling book of all time, and they all ended up giving their lives for Jesus, right? That, the things that they did, takes an enormous amount of grace, right? We can, we can think of grace as, um, what grace does as, as this. Grace enables us to accomplish what we can't do on our own. Those things that those guys did, amazing things, but they couldn't have done them on their own. It's only the power of the the grace of Jesus working in and through them. So that's what grace is, and that's what it does. And we put those two things together, we get this. Grace is God's goodness offered to all without exception through faith in Jesus, so that we might joyfully live with him and like him forever. You guys, screenshot that, write it down, take it with you, whatever you need to do to remember that. God's goodness is offered to all, and it's through faith in Jesus so that we might live joyfully with him and like him. All right, so um, if we, what happens when we invite Jesus in and we experience that grace and what it is and, and what it does? Um, we look at Jesus' life. Jesus was 100% man. And he lived this life perfectly out of humanity. He didn't cheat. He didn't pull a God card. He lived out of the overflow of his relationship with his father. 
And he did things like loved his enemies and he prayed for those who persecuted him. And when he was on the cross, he prayed for the guys who were nailing him to the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And we hear a phrase like to enable us to joyfully live with him and like him. Like, I can't do that. That's, that's like nuts. When we think about those things, that's the power of grace. It enables us to do those things that we couldn't do on our own. And there's another great example of that in the very next chapter in the book of Acts, in the first five verses. Paul's getting ready to start his first missionary journey, and he's recruiting some helpers, and he brings in a young man named Timothy. He's probably a, a, a late teenager, and they're, um, they're on their way. They're launching from a point where there's lots of Jewish folks, and they're going to be encountering lots of Jewish folks along the way. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy was not Jewish in his upbringing. His mom was Jewish and his dad was a Greek. So he was not raised Jewish. He wasn't circumcised, wasn't necessarily following uh, Torah. Paul says to Timothy, you should be circumcised. And they do that. The suggestion is because they want to remove every obstacle that they can from trying to bring Jesus's grace to everybody else. And this is just, it's kind of mind blowing to me, really. When you think about it from Paul's perspective, right? Um, he wants to remove every obstacle. So these people who just tried to kill him, like literally tried to kill him, heaped a bunch of stones on him and left him for dead. He wants to give them every opportunity to experience the grace of Jesus. And then he turns to Timothy and Timothy really steps up and takes one from the team. He says, Timothy, you should be circumcised. And Timothy does it, right? This is First century Palestine, there's no general anesthesia and it's circumcision. That's extreme grace, going and doing what we can't do on our own, right? What we, what we would think out of, um, maybe out of, our, out of our wheelhouse. As we think about some of the, um, how that might apply today, uh, it could be some, as, as simple as sitting down at a bar and having a drink with somebody to hear their story. It could be going to an AA meeting with somebody else so you can share in their journey. It's going and doing things that we might not be comfortable with for the sake of someone else under the power of Jesus. Grace leads us to going and doing whatever is necessary for those around us to know Jesus. And I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with just kind of a watch out or a warning that there are some things, or one thing really I think, that gets in the way of Jesus's grace because it is all abundant and all sufficient and glorious and great and manifold and all that stuff. Um, but I think we can get in our own way. And James kind of points that out when he gives his, um, when he renders his decision in verse 20, he lists four things that the Gentiles should try to stay away from, uh, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from, and from blood. And some scholars suggest that the reason he suggests those four things is those are the four things that were most repugnant, most abhorrent to the Jewish culture, that those parts of Gentile culture absolutely upset every part of, of Judaism. So if we could get them to just not do those things, then everybody would play nice in the sandbox and everybody would get along. I think there was some of that going on, but I think what's more, more likely a, a better theory is this, is that, um, each of those four things were directly tied, um, tied to idol worship. And the Gentiles who were coming to Jesus are coming out of an idol worshiping culture. 
that whole area, rituals and worship and temples, all dedicated to false gods and idols. And that was the world from which the Gentiles were coming. And James didn't want to see them get sucked back into that. So he enumerates these four things. Stay away from them so you don't get pulled back into that. And we think about today, and that's the biggest risk we, we run from um, inhibiting, from losing our access to God's grace, is when we put something else in Jesus's place in our lives. That's what an idol is today. Last week in the chat, um, the Roshansky shared this, this great thought. I'm not sure it was Matt or Kate, but I asked them um, if I could reiterate it for us. And they said, sure. So I want to read to you what, what they said about identifying idols. About a year ago, I heard from someone who um, isn't a Christian that what you get most offended by when someone insults it is what is really most important to you. I've thought of that as a helpful way to identify the gods or idols in my life. So folks, do you know what the idols are in your life? Identify them and do not allow them to steal the grace of Jesus from you. Because when we allow idols to steal God's place, they also steal our access to his grace. You guys, so when we, um, when we invite Jesus into our lives and we allow him that proper place that's his, we become not only recipients of that grace, but we become carriers of it. It is our responsibility to carry that with us wherever we go. So that, therefore, that makes grace a privilege and a responsibility. It's a privilege in that there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing we can say to God that says, God, you owe me, buddy. I did, I did this. I checked all the boxes. You owe me. Grace is a gift. It's an undeserved gift out of God's generosity, out of who he is. So in that aspect, it's a privilege. Because everyone in the world needs the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus is available to everyone in the world. We have a responsibility as those who have it already to take it with us wherever we go and to share this message that grace is God's goodness offered to all without exception through faith in Jesus so that we might joyfully live with him and like him forever.